Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of As We Like It. I want to apologize for getting this episode out in early July rather than late June. As it turns out, June is a very busy month for all of us and this is the only time we could really record it. So anyway, thanks again for joining us. Today we are going to be discussing the 1989 version of Henry V, written, uh, well, co-written. Uh, <laughs> adapted for the screen by. <laughs> thank you. Uh, adapted for the screen Directed and starring Kenneth Branagh, who did, if you remember, a third episode, also that version of Much Ado About Nothing. So also in this movie, a whole list of incredible actors. We have, in no order of importance, Derek Jacoby, Kenneth Branagh, Brian Blessed. I forgot him last time. I'm not going (laughs) to do that again. Uh, Ian Holm. We have Judi Dench. We have a very young Christian Bale. We have Emma Thompson speaking Mm -hmm. French. (laughs) I'm going to say that again. Emma Thompson. Speaking French, we don't get that enough in, in life. Uh, Robbie Coltrane, just a whole bunch of people in this movie. Mm-hmm. So, and a score by Patrick Doyle. I'm John. I'm Avon. And I'm Mark. So you're the one who hadn't seen it before. So what did you think? My immediate, if you look at my notes here, which you don't have, so this is <laughs> metaphorically looking at my notes. My first comment is, wow, it is weird watching this movie post-Brexit. <laughs> that is the first <laughs> that's the first thing we were both thinking of. We actually watched it. I mean, we'd watched it before, but we watched it before the vote happened. Though I think we finished watching it the night of the vote. Yeah, could I be. think if I that might be right. Yeah, but when we were prepping this, Mark and I were saying wow, <laughs> this is but... going to be an unintentionally Brexit themed <laughs> discussion, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, there's one line that well, one section mm-hmm. that really spoke to me. Um from the chorus, which is, O England, model to thy inward greatness, like little body with a mighty heart, what <laughs> mightst thou do that honor would thee do? Were all thy children kind and natural, but see thy fault. France hath in thee found out a nest of hollow bosoms, which he fills with treacherous crowns and three corrupted men. Then it goes on to talk mm, about betrayal from within. Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> what I found really interesting about this movie i mean specifically this version is how incredibly dark it is mm-hmm. um because the, the the text itself isn't necessarily no in many ways the the text is considered by many and i think rightly so to be quite an uplifting end to a grim so story i i read it as uh quite undercutting that uh that heroism yeah so i suppose it depends how you 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 take the play and i think in some ways brana i think is picking up on on those elements Mm -hmm. um then we can talk more about you know what he's doing with them but yeah but there is but there is a lot of um triumphalism in the play as well so it's a balance between the both of them and he's taken one approach i think you can play the play if you excuse the term uh in either direction quite easily i think the text allows for both but yeah the movie is not uh, it has uplifting parts but it's it's not it's not much to do about nothing no <laughs> uh very much so um kind of continuing on i don't want to hammer the brexit theme home too hard because it's mostly oh incidental. i have other well i have other things to, to bring up about that too but yeah well i was going to say uh you know the end when the french kind of desperately break the code of chivalry and murder the page boys Mm -hmm. well one of the kind of most resounding narratives i've seen in light of the brexit has been the huge age gap between those who voted to leave and those who voted to stay yeah um you know i couldn't help but see that in this as well it's like 
the 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 youths were giving their lives for kind of an elder, more established, more privileged people who ultimately would, as we later go on to see, lose this power anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, I think you can read that as well as many other conflicts that are still, I mean, basically the whole play is about, it's about a lot of things, but one of the things the whole play is about is the relationship between England and Europe. Mm -hmm. And England's desperate attempt to be part of Europe, you could even read it at. I mean, you could read Henry V as the the attempt, the historical attempt to join Europe or make Europe join England uh, and its failures in that particular moment. I've always found it really interesting, this kind of permeation in the English psyche of, you know, England hasn't been invaded since Hastings. Mm -hmm. Right. But at the same time, like, because of Hastings, England Wasn't was basically England. a French invention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then the way that the French possessions on the on the continent kind of slowly, they, they lost them and lost them. And then all they had was Calais and then they lost Calais. Mm -hmm. No, I, I agree. But um, yeah, no, it's not that England is, is taking, I mean, England is France and France is England. And that's part of the underlying story, too. But that's what I mean is that the... Uh, the attempt to join what we have at the very end of the play, the joining by marriage of the two great nations to make one, which then, as the conclusion epilogue tells us, failed again. Uh, you know, you can I'm just saying that in the light of Brexit, it's very easy to read it as a narrative about the long relationship between Europe and England and its complications and its historical um, ironies and all of those things. Especially because during the Hundred Years' War, the Kingdom of Scotland was allied to the Kingdom of France. And now we have Nicola Sturgeon and almost all of Scotland wanting to stay in the EU, you know, by hook or by crook. Well, OK, let me bring up then the other very Brexit-themed element of the play that I was thinking about when we were watching it that I thought was very topical now and yet was very topical, surely, when Branagh was adapting the play for different reasons, was the emphasis on uh, the four nations within England, right? So there's the Welshman, and then the important emphasis put on the fact that Henry V is Welsh by birth, and that then we have that scene where the Welshman meets with the Irishman and the Scot, and in fact, that's developed quite a lot more in the, or somewhat more in the play, there's a, there's a bunch of stuff cut out there, but but Branagh cut out a lot of the story to do with Flewellen, but he left in that scene by the barricades where who my nation, who talks of my nation, says the Irishman, and 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 there's this thing about the the many accents and the nations within England and how the and then um, in another place, you know, you English fools stop fighting amongst yourselves. We having enemies enough among the French that idea that there's a joining of the nations together to become England. And presumably that was important to Branagh at the time, in part because in 89, we still got IRA, IRA and, you know, all of that going on. But now with Scottish independence and with the Brexit vote with Northern Ireland and Scotland voting against England and Wales, it has resonance yet again. And there is a long tradition of this play reflecting current events, mm -hmm. um, it being interpreted that way and 
um, played for that. So as you say, yeah, uh, Northern Ireland at, at the time this film was made, around the Falkland Wars, um, the play had a bit of a resurgence as well. Mm -hmm. um, and you can see obviously the, the nationalist kind mm -hmm. of tone Sentiments. of it. It also took, uh, became a very popular soon after the and around the wars. Uh, so, yeah, this really goes to show you, you know, 1989 to now 2016, how quickly I don't want to say tides can change, but really it's what's what speaks loudest to me about Brexit is uh, it's this fundamental sh display of mistrust in this global project that has kind of been spearheaded by, you know, the U.S. and Europe. I mean, well. The countries of NATO uh, after World War II. Um, so, you know, it, it's easy to look at the Hundred Years' War now and say, hey, these three kind of distinct period conflicts can easily fit into this narrative of a hundred years. Uh, it, it's kind of like watching that now. Mm -hmm. Different stages in the same project or problem being worked out in different ways with war, the, the two world wars and then the reconstruction and the attempts to create a, a new global world. And then the failure of globalization in various ways to help. I mean, as many people have mentioned, the Brexit vote reflects in a large way the, the failure of globalization for certain people who don't understand necessarily what it is that failed them and what they were voting against, but nonetheless know that the things that are helping some people are not helping them. And so they're voting against the EU, not because the EU is at fault, but because there are larger problems and that's just a good scapegoat. But the big, the force continues to be the sort of tension between globalization and localization and, and those kinds of conflicts. Nationalism and the forces that drive nationalism and fascism, which are generally fear. So, yeah, it's an ongoing uh, tension. And I think it is interesting to see how easily this play speaks. Because there, and, and I, I think this is one of the things that's uh, sort of downplayed in the film, but it's even in more so in, in, um, uh, the the text of the play, but there is an element still there of uh, a war to as as scapegoat mm -hmm. to distract from um, domestic affairs. He goes to France not because France is so really important, but because he needs success and he needs external success success to overcome the tensions of his father's usurpation and, yeah. and his own um, And as you say, it's the four nations um, mm -hmm. and, and the, the, the real danger at the time of rebellion, which we see in, in Henry the, the IV. Mm -hmm. Well, and there's a whole part cut out of the play uh, that's not in the movie, but it's in the play where they say, are we sure we can go to war whenever we leave, Scotland comes down like a wolf on the fold. If we walk, if we if we take all our men to France, Scot Scotland will come and invade again, yeah. and uh, they resolve to leave a certain amount of men to deal with Scotland, and they say they won't, and it's not the same as it was last time. But that you know, there's a there's a clear division within the country that this foreign expedition is going to help, apparently. 
And um, before we spend too much time talking about the nitty gritty, uh, this would be a good moment to kind of summarize the play. Okay. Well, I mean, the basic plot is really very minimal. Uh, We start off with a scene that is somewhat in the movie um, where the bishops and archbishops of England are saying, oh, you know, uh, Henry's going to come and tax us and he wants to take away our, our most of our property in England. But we've promised that if we help him in France, we'll give him lots of money towards France and he won't take away all our properties. And they say, oh, yes, okay, that's a good idea. And then we see Henry being persuaded that he has a lawful claim to the territories in in France or possibly all of France through inheritance on his mother's side. And then he goes off to war. Before they leave, there's a challenge from the Dauphin, uh, the, the prince of France sends him a set of tennis balls, Paris balls, to mock him for being a, a, a callow youth. I guess the idea is that he's, he's still a young man and he's had such a wild youth and that he's obviously more fit for the tennis courts than he is for warfare. Then they head off. They have that scene that you brought up where there's some treachery. Some people have been bought off by France to try to kill Henry. He finds out. He has them executed. Meanwhile, we also see are introduced to some of his old companions who we and we find out that Falstaff has died. I actually Falstaff. like the mm-hmm. way that he deals with the three traitors, though. It's super shrewd, it's super shrewd, but I like it because he goes to them and they're, you know, feigning their their loyalty. And he, and says, he says, oh, I've given you your uh, your commands that I said I was going to give you. Yeah. Well, I was going to say where he asks, like, how should I deal with the traitor? Oh, yes. Yeah. And yeah. they're like, show them no mercy. And he's like, OK, you guys are traitors. So thank you for that advice. Mm-hmm. And please show us mercy. No, no. You just told me I shouldn't show mercy. It'll just encourage others. So there we go. Yeah, no, it's it's very well played. Um, it's well written and then it's well played. So then they go off to France and really the rest of the movie is just fighting in France. And we have the famous set pieces of the... Uh, once more onto the breach, the attack on Harfleur. And then we have uh, the some other scenes with various low characters. And then the great battle. Well, before that, um, very importantly, the king in disguise amongst his men. Oh, yes. Who goes around at night and we have some important speeches and philosophizing. And then he, the, the, that's the night before the great battle of Agincourt, at which the English slaughter the French, even though they are hugely outnumbered and tired and shouldn't win and are the underdogs. But they're great noble character. And as the movie makes clear, their arrows, their longbows, uh, destroy the French, the flower of the sh- French chivalry, and they win. And then we have a final scene where the princess Catherine is wooed by Henry, whom we've met her just a little, er, we met her earlier practicing her English, and then she's wooed by Henry. And the treaty is signed with France giving everything that Henry wanted to him, and Catherine as well to be his wife. Uh, That's, I mean, it's a very bald summary of it. 
and leaves out all the bits that are famous and exciting. <laughs> but we can talk about that as we go on. But so, I mean, it, it's a history. It's neither a tragedy nor a comedy. It ends with a marriage, but it's not funny. It has funny parts, but it's not basically at heart a funny play. Though there's more humor in the play than makes it into the film. Yes, the film is less humorous than the movie, than the play. But it's, you couldn't call it a comedy in terms of its structure and what it's about, I don't think. But it's also certainly not a tragedy. It is very much a history in terms of its genre. One thing the film does, which relates really closely to, you know, the last movie we watched, mm-hmm. is it incorporates bits and pieces of Henry the Fourth parts one and two, specifically mm-hmm. in flashbacks to Falstaff. Because as a character, he's not actually in this play. He's mm-hmm. kind of killed off. This gives us the character. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives us a little bit of the emotional development of how... Uh, from, you know, a, a young man to uh, kind of a ruthless king. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's why we wanted that's why we wanted to watch it right after um, My Private Idaho, because it does develop that character and follow that story through. And I it just I think having that, even though it was a translated version, but having that in your head helps add to to the emotional poignancy, because we we saw that development of that relationship and then the rejection and now we see the consequences of the rejection again we have Falstaff dying of a broken heart because he's been rejected by Harry and okay. it, uh, it, it's lovely I, I, I can't not make the connection that Falstaff is played by Robbie Coltrane rejected <laughs> by Harry Robbie Coltrane game Hagrid you're a wizard Harry okay sorry I had to I had to get that out <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, it is. I mean, like a lot of these movies, it is a movie, as you said, with all all of these actors that we know from so many other things. And sometimes there are moments when it's hard not to see all the other things you've seen them in <laughs> coming, bubbling to the surface. I mean, Brian Blessed is one of those where, I mean, he's perfect for the role he's in here, but... He's always bl- Brian Blessed. He's always Brian Blessed. <laughs> I was actually reading, I was reading TV Tropes the other week and there was a... Like an article just for Brian Blessed appearances. <laughs> as, as, Every as appearance a is a trope. <laughs> Every appearance of his becomes a trope immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know how, well, you never did, well, you sort of did, but what did you, did you like the movie? John? I did. I liked, I liked the movie a lot more than Macbeth mm-hmm. in terms of kind of brutal portrayals of war. I mm-hmm. thought this one was a lot more effective because it was a lot less stylized, which is not to say that it wasn't stylized because it was, mm-hmm. but it was very. Um, it was aiming th- for a certain kind of naturalism, I think. Yes. And actually of the movies we've watched so far, what it reminded me the most of was Ron. Now, Ron is significantly bleaker and more cynical, um, but the, you know, once more onto the breach scene, they're kind of into this flaming castle like this movie came out a year after Ron, so I doubt there was actually a direct uh, reference, but the two scenes were shot very similar to me, or at least they felt very similar. Um, and the kind of the just the construction of the battle scenes, the epic large battle scene, scenes with tracking shots and just kind of the underscoring the relentless nature of some of the actual combat. So also, before I forget, Once More Unto the Breach is also the name of an episode of Star Trek DS9. <laughs> which I would make you guys watch next if 
that were feasible, but I don't <laughs> think anybody should watch DS9 unless you watch the entire series because it is a, uh, it is, is the best Star Trek, but it's only the best Star Trek if you commit to if the If you full watch thing. all of it, yeah. Uh, we did, we have watched DS9, though I admit, I think there are, there's stuff in the later seasons I haven't seen. I think we stopped being as good at watching all of it towards the end, but yes, it is very good. Um, yeah. I really like the movie. I mean, I think I made that clear when we recommended it. it. It's one of my favorites. It's funny. I don't, I mean, it is grim, but I don't find it as grim as I think you seem to. Uh, one of the reasons I'm always, I always feel guilty watching it, actually, because I take, when I watch the scenes where he, especially his speech right before Agincourt, the famous speech rousing his men and uh, men in England still asleep will count themselves accursed to, to be uh, you know, that they weren't here. All of that stuff. Every time I listen to it, I'm all roused up and moved by it in spite of my theoretical pacifism and hatred of such jingoistic, nationalistic, <laughs> you know, glory filled approach to war. And yet every time it gets me. Uh, same with Once More Into the Breach and all those speeches. So I feel slightly guilty at how much I enjoy the movie because I feel I ought not to. And that's one of the things that I think is perhaps not as successful about the film as an adaptation. As a film, it's absolutely heroic, right? And mm -hmm. everything works so well towards that, including the, you know, the, the amazing... Um, musical score mm -hmm. is so crucial to that. Um, but one of the ways that he does it is by taking text out, mm -hmm. text and, and, that complicates Harry. and things that complicate it and undercut it. And if, I mean, there, there are a number of different ways you can read this play. If you read the play as ultimately heroic, then I guess what you have to assume is that Shakespeare is setting up a really uh, high bar and then leaping over it. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the other way of taking it is saying, no, it's just his heroism is far too undercut and it's too problematic and uh, it, it doesn't ultimately um, work. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's a possible reading. Um, but, you know, let's, let's assume that the heroic reading of, of the play is, is, you know, is accurate or reasonable? Reasonable. Um, then for it to, to um, I, I just find it, it too over the, the, the movie too over the top. Mm -hmm. it, there, there isn't enough of, uh, you know, because it's all about uh, him, you know, uh, his legitimacy as king. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, right, the scene that you mentioned at the beginning with the, uh, with the two priests, mm -hmm. um, you know, essentially bribing him. Mm -hmm. And he either falls for it or he connives connives mm -hmm. and he knows that their their um logical reading of uh the the law is suspect at best mm -hmm. and but he goes along with it anyways because he wants an excuse to war for his own purposes and they cut and he um brenna cut out uh, several chunks of the scene between the priests in order to leave out mm -hmm. their uh because there's a there's a whole chunk that's not in there about him 
them saying, yes, no, he he we've had this talks with him and he's basically signaled that he's willing to compromise as well as long as we're willing to come. You know, very, yeah. where, where it makes it clear that he's been quite political in his discussions with them. Yeah. And that's kind of left out and it's left instead to make it seem like these priests are skulking around behind their, his back and they're the ones being all political. But he's really, truly wants a legitimate reason to attack. Mm-hmm. And that's stretching the Shakespeare. I guess that's why I found this interpretation to be ultimately very bleak, because Mm. to me, it underscores a lot of the hollow nature of conflict. Uh, Mm. You know, like you said, you're a pacifist, but these speeches still rouse you like Mm -hmm. that kind of proves the point, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That the rhetoric is rhetoric and it does a good job. But even if you disagree with it and then. Then you wonder, well, what's the point of it? But also like the wild tonal shift at the Mm. end of the movie where Mm -hmm. it goes from this four minute long tracking shot of the horrors of a a battlefield after a fight to a brief diplomatic scene. Then he's flirting with Mm -hmm. the the formal flirtation with Kate. That's definitely the the funniest, you know, moments of the Mm -hmm. the whole film. Mm -hmm. And then they get married and then, yeah, it's. That, okay, so, mm-hmm. that that change in tone for me was very it, it felt intentional mm-hmm. uh as a way right, of jarring. saying that yeah like jarring in a, in a way of saying that like all of these deaths that just happened kind of mm-hmm. don't matter yeah they were they were a means to an end and and all of yeah i i think you can i i think the movie isn't necessarily as one note as as you're saying mark i mean it, it is more so i think it is more so than the play but i agree i think there is uh an element of at by the end of it you realizing that he is completely willing to use his men to rouse them up with his power of speech just as he's willing to use catherine at the end because while it's adorable that scene between them and funny and he's very charming what the hell is he saying he loves her? He's just met her. Yeah. He doesn't love her. Of course he doesn't. This is an entirely political marriage. And it's, in fact, framed in such a way as to make it very clear that it's a political marriage. There's no nobody's in any doubt that the reason he's marrying her is so that they can join France and England, because at the end they say we're marrying to join France and England. Um. so he's we see him yet again using the power of his persuasive speech to do what needs to be done and use a person and she's aware she's being used and yet she's won over by him. And I do think that that, that uh, shift from the battlefield to the court, to the stateroom, he's doing the same thing in both contexts. He's able to rouse people to what he wants and then he uses them as tool as tools for his ends. While we're still talking about kind of the interpretation went in, that went into the movie. Mm-hmm. One thing I did find is this felt a lot more interpretive to me than much do but nothing did um yeah yeah for a lot of reasons like the music i think while the music and much do about nothing was lovely Mm -hmm. it was with the exception of the scene where they're both swinging and you know Mm -hmm. playing in the fountain Mm -hmm. and they realize they both love each other um it was largely like diegetic whereas Mm -hmm. the, the the music in henry v was very prevalent and very cinematic and very uh, operatic almost mm-hmm. yes and pointed. And, yeah uh well your your comment mark will will come full circle in about 30 minutes mm-hmm. um 
the music, what it really does to me is it shows uh, the effort that Branagh went into, that Branagh put into this, uh, this being the first movie he directed, mm-hmm. the, the effort that he put into this to show that there were things you could do with a movie that you couldn't do on screen and it's on stage yeah on stage and it's not you know oh i can shoot you know at the white cliffs of dover i can yeah Mm -hmm. it's you know you can use music in a movie in a way that you can't do in a stage and -hmm. i think the other way he did this which was not an addition but rather an interpretation of an element in the play was the way that the chorus appears yeah yeah we should totally talk about that because i think that's one of the it's one of the fascinating elements of the play and then it's really i thought it was it was a really interesting way of then translating that from the play to the yeah. to the movie because so, it, it makes the point well i can't show all this stuff on stage so yeah take so my let's word just say it. let's just say about the chorus if you don't know the play well um this play has a chorus who's called the chorus who comes on before every scene he comes on at the introduction and then before every not every scene before every act and uh sets the stage and literally and he taught it's very meta theatrical it says okay here you're about to watch a a play and it's not going to look like the real thing because we've only got like four or five men and we're supposed to look like Agincourt and that's obviously not going to happen and now you have to pretend that everybody's on horses and now we're going to move to France and I know it can't go that fast but let's pretend we can do it and use your imagination and use your mind's eye and sorry that we've got such great men confined to such a petty stage and makes this it it, it does a lot of the stuff that a chorus will do in other kinds of plays of um filling in the plot details and stuff like that, but also makes continual comments about the inadequacy of staging to properly portray these great events. And then we have that in this movie, all this, not all of the lines because a whole bunch is cut, but lot, but the, the chorus does turn up before every act and they've got him in the, what, what do you call it? The prop room in the back. It's not the wings because it's the it's a movie. A, yeah, it's, it's a film, film stage. Film stage. But, um, he's got, you've got him wandering around the back lot, basically. And backdrop and all of that. And in modern dress. And saying these lines about how he's not going to do a very good job of showing many men and horses. And right, then they go all out. And show you. many main men and horses. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, I, think that's, I think it's really, really interesting, and I think it was really nicely done. Well, and in a way that... Are, are you familiar with Bertolt Brecht? Yeah, somewhat. So in, in a way that, you know, the, the chorus in this play, or the chorus in ancient Greece, this is very solipsistic as a member of, you know, the 20th century, to say that those presage Brecht. But, you know, like, the Brecht was insistent on telling the audience that you're watching a play. And, you know, in this case, we have a very historical example of this, but the way it's being adapted was a very like post-Brechtian twist on this pre-Brechtian ideal. You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I th- I agree. I think he's taking something that was meta-theatrical already, but he's... Um, he made it a meta-theatrical commentary it, on meta-theatrical commentaries. Yeah, ex- exactly. He, he said, okay, now what I'm challenging you to do is to think about what it means that I can show you all of these horses and I can show you all of this uh, and all these men and these great scenes. And yet it still isn't actually France and it still isn't actually Henry. 
and you're still having to use your imagination. And what does I mean to me? It makes you think. What does that mean? What it makes you suddenly remember that movies are still made up too, and they're, you know, like I I think it 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 is a um it is doing something different in the movie than it did for Shakespeare's audience in the play, and that is a product of our more contemporary. Um, meta 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 you know world <laughs> postmodern postmodern and all of that and 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 i think it's uh, i i really like that about it i like that he kept the i mean he could have just dumped the chorus you didn't need it um though it's got he's got good lines but but he doesn't and he uses it in a way that i think uh, adds a lot to and also to our post you know postmodern thoughts about what history is and about great man history you know, it adds that layer about what it is to tell a history of, of a war where all you do is focus on Harry and what that means, that kind of stuff. One of the things, and I think you know this, Mark, but one of the things about, so what we've got is this kind of conflict between glory and atrocities in the play, for sure, about the glory of war, but also the the brutishness of it and the the atrocities that are committed. And one of the things that's really key to the adaptation is that they leave in the part about the French murdering the boys, as you brought up. They leave out the fact that just before the French murder the boys, or before Harry's told about it, he thinks that the French who were on the run have come back and are attacking again. And he puts out the word in the play, he tells... Uh, all passes the word that all the prisoners should be killed. All the French prisoners should be killed. Yeah. And that is a historical well, fact or whatever, but it's, a, you know, it's, it's, it's something that was historically known about and, and considered quite a heinous crime by him. And in the play, he first says, Oh, there's an al- alarms. The French are coming back. Pass the word, kill all the prisoners so that they can't rise up. Then the boys are killed. Then they discover that the boys have been killed and then someone else says, oh, we discovered the boys were killed and therefore in retaliation, Harry has ordered all the prisoners should be killed. But the play makes it clear that he actually gave the order before. So clearly there was sort of some people tried to excuse him by saying it was in retaliation. But the play is essentially saying, nah, that was just a story that went about afterwards. That's left out of the movie. So we have the atrocities only done by the French and not by Harry. Mm. On the other hand, the scene uh, right before Harfleur, where he threatens, he, when he stands up and says, okay, are you going to let us in or not? And then the town does surrender. He threatens them with atrocities and some of it's cut out, but some of it's left in. I mean, the, just the, the repetitions are, le- are cut out, but where he says, you know, if, if you don't surrender easily, when we come in, we will rape your women in front of you. We will dash your baby's brains against the walls. We will, you know, throw the old men in the dirt and cut their throats. But if you let us in, we'll treat you kindly. So uh, they, he did leave that in, um, but he doesn't actually do it. Um, so there's this sort of tension between glory and atrocities, and I think that the movie errs f- more on the side of showing it more for glory than the atrocities, at least on the English side. I thought that was interesting to point out. This actually seems like a good time to bring up this fun fact that I found. Uh, <laughs> apparently a mock trial for yes. Henry V uh, 
for the crimes associated with the legality of the invasion. I'm reading this verbatim from Wikipedia. So uh, crimes associated with the legality of the invasion and the slaughter of prisoners was held in Washington, D.C. in March 2010, drawing from both historical record and Shakespeare's play. Titled The Supreme Court of the Amalgamated Kingdom of England and France, participating judges were Supreme Court Justices Samuel Alito and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The outcome was originally determined to be determined by an audience vote, but due to a draw, it came down to a judge's decision. The court was divided on Henry's justification for war, but unanimously found him guilty on the killing of the prisoners after applying the evolving standards of the maturing society. Yeah, I remember that story. Um, when it happened, yeah. 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 So, I mean, I think that that's an interesting point uh, in the context of sort of the treatment of war in movies in the last 15, 20 years, too, and that sort of evolving process of what is justified and what isn't and how you portray it. So, and I think you're right that that, Mark, that this is part of the, in Shakespeare, it's part of the development of Harry as a leader. Is he a good leader? Is he a bad leader? And I think that's an important element of the play. And I think that is definitely an important element of the movie, too. Now, the movie, I think, comes down on the side that he is a good leader, if a ruthless one, Mm -hmm. but he's an effective one. Mm -hmm. Uh, He he succeeds. Um, So the whole question of patriotism and Harry as a hero and his leadership, that's a really big element of the, the way the movie portrays it. And one of the things that it does, again, to highlight that theme from the play, I think, is by cutting out a lot of scenes that aren't about Harry. So there's a ton of scenes and parts of scenes from the play that are around Pistol and Flewellen and various other minor characters that are just cut out because they're basically not about Harry. So Though they, I think, uh, in a sense, reflect Harry. Some of them do. But in a more much more complex way. Yeah. Uh, that but they just, what they literally do is they take the focus off him. They do. That is yeah. like, he's not on screen in them. And I think that is why they were cut out as much as anything else. Also, because those humor scenes are hard to translate. I've got to say, when I read them, they aren't very funny. <laughs> like, you know, the... When I mean translator, I mean that like there's a lot of language in them that you have to know what the words refer to to get the puns and you have to understand the cultural thing they're referring to. That's a very minor detail of how like people eat or where they sleep or something so that you can get the joke. And so they are hard. Honestly, that's the kind of humor I love to produce myself. So mm-hmm. I understand that the number of times I make a joke that nobody understands. <laughs> yeah. And I mean. It's not that I don't think it can be funny, but I can understand why a director would despair of trying to make it funny. <laughs> well, so it's like today uh, I was leaving the office with a couple of my coworkers and we passed an oak tree. I saw the oak tree. I thought mm-hmm. in my head, Quercus, mm-hmm. which made me think of the Porta Quercachalana in Rome, which made me think of the baker's tomb. So then I made a joke about the baker's tomb. Which of course nobody is going to understand because <laughs> nobody's going to follow that that line of thought. That train of thought, yeah. <laughs> but I do appreciate humor that's like so radically uh, exclusive that it really takes mm-hmm. – it, it's never going to hit you. But if you study it, you understand it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, and of course, the thing is, though, it, the, the 
those scenes in Shakespeare were not meant to be that kind of humor. That, yeah, that's very at the true. time, right? They were meant to be fairly broad humor. It's just they relied on a bunch of like lewd jokes where we've forgotten what that word was in slang. <laughs> so you know, whole bunch of jokes for the word of words for penis, but we don't use those words for penis anymore. So now we can't tell that they're rude jokes, that kind of stuff. Or um, it's, it's like making a koyato ergo sum joke, like only yeah. a certain number of people are going to understand koyato versus kojato. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if they, if that's something they know, then it's funny. But if they don't, there's not a lot of place. He did a good job of making those kinds of things funny in Much Ado, mm-hmm. but he did cut stuff out there mm-hmm. too. And because the whole play was a comedy, he could spend the time on building the comedy and the rhythms and all of that. Whereas doing that in the middle of Henry V, I can totally, I mean, I'm not suggesting it was a bad decision, but what it did do was help focus very much, make the play very much about Harry as a hero and what kind of person he was and and his uh, development as a leader. Well, speaking of his development as leader, one thing I found really interesting is in the beginning of the movie, the the read I get from his... Harry is, I don't know how else to put it, kind of femme. Mm-hmm. And then as it develops, his Harry gets a lot more aggressive and mm-hmm. um, kingly and noble. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the once more to the breach speech, which is, mm-hmm. you know, we've discussed this so famous, actually really reminded me of an episode of Talking Tolkien we just recorded, which is in Return of the King, chapter five, when Rohan is like, charging into the battle to save Minas Tirith reminds mm-hmm. me of uh, of King Theoden's speech, mm-hmm. which is much shorter, uh, super, super impactful within the text. But mm-hmm. also in that narrative, Theoden goes from being kind of this weak, weak. corrupt king mm-hmm. to um, really taking on the reins of battle when when the time needs, needs him to and becoming mm-hmm. s- strong and kind of more clarion than any speaker could ever be. Mm-hmm. Well, and I I think we could all agree that it's quite likely that Tolkien was thinking of King Harry in part and the Shakespeare when he was writing that, because that I think I think the Henry V has always been famous for that element of how Harry sort of picks up, as you say, the reins of, of leadership and goes from I mean, that's why the whole scene at the beginning with the Dauphin sending him the Paris balls is so important to his motivation and to his character development, because it's a reminder that, yes, he was not that long ago a weak and idle and um, luxurious man. You read Nefem is, is uh, I don't think at all wrong, but obviously slightly well, uh, the contemporary context uh, anachronistic is in the terminology, from... of course, yeah, yeah, but but that's basically what it is in in just translated into a different historical context. Someone who wasn't manly enough, and then and he's being taunted with that, and then the whole thing as it's framed in the movie, and I do think that's another place where he uses the way the movie is framed to undercut the heroism. It's kind of framed like the whole invasion of France is just to get back at the Dauphin. A little bit, you know, that in the end, it's just like, I'll show you. And again, that's, you know, a slightly problematic motivation for having so many people murdered or killed. So, yeah, I think there is a that element of him becoming so very 
manly. And then at the by the end where he says to Kate, oh, I can't woo a woman. I don't know how if I could only win a woman by, you know, vaulting bareback onto a horse, that'd be fine. And part of me thinks, wait a minute. You hung out with all those men and all those taverns and all those women. You had your share of whores and all the rest of it. Are you trying to tell me you never spent any time wooing a woman? Like, you aren't some gruff soldier. That's actually not who you are at all. And I think that's perhaps we're meant to remember that and to think, wait a minute, this is just another rhetorical presentation of himself. This isn't actually true even though he does it with such great sincerity and charm. Um, and I think that also comes down to the, one of the other important themes, which is the monarch and private person stuff. And that's, you wanted to, you reminded me about the scene where he wanders around the campfires right. and that has that big monologue all about what it is to be a king and who's responsible for those going to war and their souls and the weight of responsibility of kingship and whether you get to be a king or a private person. And that also comes out in particular in the scene with Catherine, where he basically says, you and I are monarchs. The rules don't, even in that bit, oh, French ladies don't kiss if they're not, um, <laughs> yes. if they're not married. And he says, oh, come on, we're a king and queen. We can do whatever the hell we want. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> we'll set the fashion. We don't follow fashion. I mean, that's a lighthearted approach, but a lot of the play and, and the movie, I think, are about what what do you do as a because that's the whole thing about the transition between Henry the Fourth and Henry the Fifth for Prince Harry is going from private person to king and putting off the things he could do as a private person he, that he can't do as king. Uh, all the stuff about um, Bardolph and what, the guy who was hanged, whom he can't save, because as king, he has to hang the thief, even though uh, as a private person, he wouldn't want to. And I thought that was all brought out pretty well, even though they cut so many of those scenes. That stuff with um, his former friends, I thought that was well done and quite touching, really. All right. Well, I have run through all of my notes. If you guys have anything else you want to touch upon. I have a couple other things, but I won't. I already talked about the languages and accents of Great Britain versus England. So just to remind us of that. The last one was it's again about Harry because it's all about Harry is the humility and arrogance stuff. And I thought that was really brought out in particular again by the way that the text was cut to emphasize the hum how Harry was so humble and full of humility as opposed to the arrogant French. Uh, and they're boasting and they're, especially with the way that they both spent the and that's really definitely in the Shakespeare text, the way they both spend the night before the Battle of Agincourt, the French sitting around in their tent, boasting about their horses and their armor and how many they're going to kill and how everybody's, and then the English all huddled up ready to die and Harry going around in, um, incognito talking to his men to cheer them up and that that contrast between the Dauphin and Harry and how they spent their night which is then really picked up on by the Dan Nobis um, sorry the non Nobis scene that long tracking shot you were talking about with the singing of the non uh, non Nobis Domino uh, what is it non Nobis Domine 
sed tuo nomine da gloriam, not in, uh, not to us, Lord, but in your name we give glory. We give the glory. Um, it focuses the, everything on, the, I mean, the humility and then Harry picking up one of the boys himself and carrying him tired and so very mortal across the sea the whole way and just one of the men um, truly beaten down and by his glorious victory but not finding the glory in it and we're showing all the misery of war with the swelling chorus behind him uh, and then the contrast immediately to the stateroom and the, the the kingliness of the of the French and the English courts so I think that that's I love that scene, but I also, the part of my, me is a bit cynical and says, yeah, it's very nicely done to show us how very humble Harry is, but he's not humble at all. It's, it's, it's just part of his act. But it's beautiful, and I have the song in my head. For, <laughs> I've had it for days now, and I can't get it out of my head. That singer, by the way, is Patrick Doyle, the, the composer. Oh, really? The, the first guy The guy, singing, who, the guy yeah. who starts yeah. singing it on the uh, battlefield. And he also, Patrick Doyle, has a singing um, uh, cameo in Much Ado About Nothing. He's the... Oh, the guy playing the, the, who hey, sings... Nani, Nani. There you go. <laughs> Interesting. Um, oh, little piece of trivia, too. I just, I mentioned it in passing, but the play never mentions the longbows and the arrows that are generally agreed to be what won Agincourt for the English the Welsh longbows. It actually is never mentioned in the play. And so I think that was an interesting element of the movie where they make it quite clear with the way they stage it that it's those arrows that cut down the ranks of the French. That and make, so it, that's the sort of nod. it works so well because mm -hmm. of the, the Fluellen character who, mm -hmm. and this is, I don't think comes out as much in the film, but they make fun of him for his, you know, he, he claims knowledge of war mm -hmm. and they kind of make fun of him about that. Um, but in fact, his people are the ones who, who win. But the play doesn't really make that as clear as the movie does in the sense of the, the arrows. The it, arrows. Do, it doesn't yeah. show the longbowmen. Yeah, so I think yeah. that's a nod that the movie makes to the historical facts. Mm -hmm. uh, that is a nice touch adding in to it may not have needed mentioning in the Shakespeare play because everybody knew or, or I don't know why, but it, I thought that was interesting. Oh, and also Henry totally would have been able to speak French <laughs> just for the record. I know that the language of the court by that point was now English, but it was only English like 50 years it had been officially English or less by that point. It was only sometime in the 14th century, uh, probably the late 14th century, that they stopped the English nobility, stopped speaking French. It would have been Anglo-Norman, so it would have been a bit different. But the language, I mean, the, they totally would have known French is all I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> People were reading, you know, French literature mm -hmm. the chaucer in the 15th century chaucer's writing in english and it's a really big deal because he's the first like high court person high status person to write in english so um that obviously is anachronistic but it does kind of match nicely with the emphasis on different nations and different languages and different accents yeah. i mean the motto of the united kingdom is still in french yeah, yeah. exactly so <laughs> um but still i it, it, I mean, it makes for beautiful scenes and uh, very funny ones. So do you know what, why Catherine gets so amused by uh, Le, what is it? The, 
foot. The, the foot. And uh, no, I, I, my French is awful. Yeah, well, okay. So, so she, she's learning about what, what the hand, the hand, the fang, all of this stuff, trying to figure out that. And then she asks, what about uh, the le pied? And she says, oh, that's le, le foot. And they both giggle. And she says, I can't say that. Je ne peux pas dire ça avant le grand seigneur. I can't say that in front of a great man. Foot is, uh, foutre is to fuck. And so like that, and with that level of language. And then the other one was, uh, no, it's con. I don't remember, but it's a word for um, how explicit language can we use. Female anatomy. Um, It sounds like the Mm. French for the word for (laughs) uh, an unmentionable part of the female anatomy. So that's what that big joke is, where they wish she says, I can't possibly say that. And they laugh themselves silly. That's why. Because those, <laughs> those English words sound like French swear words to them, <laughs> and so you know you got to give sh- yeah you got to give Shakespeare the props for the multilingual dirty puns. <laughs> it, it seems a trivial thing to, to to pick in such a grand film, but uh, I, my favorite line, the way it's played, and it, it amuses me every time, is you know the the scene where uh, he's he's kissed. Catherine, and he says, uh, oh, your father's coming. Here comes your father. Here comes, Here comes your father, yes. <laughs> and it's, yeah, it is. He does it perfectly. <laughs> um, I think my favorite scene, I mean, I think I can only go with the either the cliched scene of the, um, the, the speech before Agincourt. Mm. I mean, I think it's just really well done and, and it works. Or the seen uh, the long tracking shot with the music because I love the the music so much of the choral of uh, Non Nobis. So those are my scenes. Though I do love the scene with Catherine too. Yeah, I'm going to have to go for the tracking shot as well. Um, mm-hmm. I just thought it was a particularly effective, mm-hmm. very, um, very mechanically impressive thing because mm-hmm. the the budget for this movie, according to the internet was $9 million, which $9 million in 1989 was a lot more than $9 million today. Mm-hmm. But but it's still you're making, not... Yeah. Yeah, movies were being made for a lot more money in that time that did not mm-hmm. have that scope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, that whole battlefield scene is... It's very impressive. And it's, you know, it's gritty and horrible and full of mud. And that must have been awful conditions to try to film in. <laughs> and they do a yeah. great job. Like to put things into perspective, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade came out the same year and cost nine times as much money. Yeah. 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 It had a lot more uh, location shooting, too. But <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I think he did an amazing. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, they went to Jordan. a really good movie. Yeah. Yes, yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> There's other stuff going on in Indiana Jones. But no, I think he did I think he did an amazing job with what he had. Um you know that he was he played that that part in that play in Stratford. Uh in Stratford von Avon um just a few years before. So it was basically that production that he took to the or it was because of that production at first anyway that he took it to the movie which I thought was interesting. So I've chosen our next, I'm not going to call it a movie because it's not actually a movie, but I've decided that since we're on a kick with the Henriad 
that's what they're called, right? The Henriad? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, since since we're on a kick with the Henriad, how about we keep it going a little bit longer uh, and also mm-hmm. continue to embrace the concept of interpretation? So mm-hmm. I thought it would be fun if we watched a recording of the of Verdi's opera, Falstaff. Oh, oh. that's a great idea. I'm... Totally have not seen that. <laughs> yeah. So Falstaff is, as I understand, based on excerpts of uh, Henry the Fourth, one and two, and also the Merry Wives of Windsor. Right. right. Which is yes. a Falstaff's so other big. Yeah. Yeah. So the opera, rather than being, you know, like Verdi's other uh, Shakespeare opera, you know, like Otello or Macbeth is not mm-hmm. telling a Shakespeare play, but rather excerpting the character to, to make the character his own play. Or his own story, okay. which is fairly common mm-hmm. in opera. Um, but yeah. I love opera. And uh, so w- with this, we've got two levels of interpretation. Because one, we have Verdi's mm-hmm. interpretation of Shakespeare. And then the other, we mm-hmm. have the opera performance's interpretation of yeah. Verdi. So Verdi. Uh, mm-hmm. the... The, the production I've chosen is a Metropolitan Opera production that's actually f- fairly um, non-interpretive in that there's a big debate in the opera world. You know, there's basically American opera, which is very conservative, and European opera, which is like, let's put it in space. Not actually, but that kind of, you know, like crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So this production is... Uh, the recording is from October 1992, and the production is designed by Franco Zeffirelli, oh, who okay. designed what is in my book the best production of La Boheme, but also is probably most famous outside of the world of opera for directing the 1969 movie version of Romeo and Juliet. So I figured we could do this, and then eventually we can segue into Romeo and Juliet. We could see the Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, right. Yeah. Absolutely. So is that a, do you have a source for that then? Yes, you can rent it on the Metropolitan Opera's website for $3.99. Very good. Well, okay, I look forward to that because that is something I haven't seen and I haven't seen a lot of opera, but I look forward to watching some more. I like it. I listen to it. I just don't watch it very much. Yeah. So yeah, okay. I'm not quite certain when we'll get to it, but we'll should be able to in the Soon next enough. couple of weeks. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. I mean, we're on a summer schedule, right? Yeah, exactly. We'll get to it when we get to it. If it's, you know, rains. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks to everyone for listening. I'm John. I'm Avon. And I'm Mark. All right. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to As We Like It. You can find more episodes and more information about the show at theextracurricular.com and find more about Avon and Mark's other projects at alliterative.net. If you enjoyed today, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes or Stitcher, as your five stars can really help us reach new listeners. You can reach us all on Twitter. I'm at alliterative. I'm at Avon Sarah, A-V-E-N-S-A-R-A-H. And I'm at John Vox, J-O-N-V-O-X.